have got a lot of ground we're going to cover tonight. We're going to the book of Hosea. So, but before, let me remind you where we've been. This is how much we've covered. We covered the minor prophets last, we finished the minor prophets last time I was with you, two weeks ago. We finished the book of Daniel. We have covered all of that ground. We're ready to start on Hosea. Now, that looks impressive, but it's taken us from January 2015 just to get here. So, it's been a slow walk, all right? But we're getting ready to start on the minor prophets. So, we've covered a lot of ground. My goal, I don't know that we'll accomplish it, my goal would be I'd love to finish the Old Testament before the year's out, but I'm not sure that's going to happen. And uh, what do we do after we finish the Old Testament? We just keep on going into the New Testament, and when we get done, we'll start over or do something different. So, uh, so open up to the book of Hosea. You can remember Hosea by this. Hosea by this. See, you get it, don't you? Makes sense, right? Big old hose, and she's standing there by that uh, street lamp like she's a street walker. This gives you a feel for what the book of Hosea is about. It'll make a whole lot more sense if you, if you don't get it as we get into the book of Hosea. Uh, it'll make a lot more sense, trust me. So let's talk about Hosea the prophet. Hosea the prophet. Hosea, his name means, anybody know what his name means? His name means salvation. Hosea means salvation. And, and he's a contemporary with Isaiah and with Micah. So he lived at the same time. He, he comes in right after Amos in the timeline. But he's a contemporary with Isaiah and Micah. He's a prophet that lived in the northern kingdom. And he prophesied to the northern kingdom which was kind of rare. Usually they lived in one kingdom and prophesied towards the other. But he lived in the northern kingdom, prophesied in the northern kingdom about 200 years after the kingdom split. Remember the kingdom was united during King Saul, during King David, and during Solomon. But because of Solomon's indiscretion, when Solomon died, the kingdom split. And 10 of the tribes of the north became the nation of Israel. Two of the tribes to the south became the southern kingdom of Judah. And so about 200 years after that split happens, then Amos comes on the scene, or excuse me, Hosea comes on the scene and begins to prophesy. Now, here's what happened too in Israel. Right before Hosea comes on the scene, they were doing well. They were actually thriving. It was kind of a golden age in the northern kingdom. But then it started to decline. With Jeroboam II, things started to decline. And the kingdom was, was basically going down the tubes as they watched it. Uh, it's funny how periods of prosperity seem to get followed by really rough times because we let our guard down in periods of prosperity. And so then it kind of whiplashes and gets us. And this is what happened in the northern kingdom. It was a time when kings were being ousted by coups. There were murders. There was moral corruption, idolatry, social injustice. All of this was going on. That's how dark the kingdom was getting. And so this is what Hosea steps into to speak to. And he's called to prophesy to them. Now, he preaches and prophesies for about 34 years. So this is not a fly-by-night guy. This is a guy that went into it for the long haul. But their failure to turn from the idol worship and their failure to, to quit trusting in other nations to save them rather than God wound up being their downfall. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, in fact, Hosea is called the deathbed prophet of Israel because he's kind of the last prophet that gets to speak into Israel 
before they get taken away by the Assyrians. And this is what the book of Hosea is about. This, the Assyrians are coming, and God's trying one more time, as he always tries, to get their attention. So that's a little bit about Hosea. Now let's look at the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea is a collection of Hosea's prophecies and, and writings. It's very poetic. I mean, there's a lot of poetry in the book of Hosea. Uh, the book's divided into two parts. The first three chapters symbolically represent Israel's idolatry. Or, or excuse me, uh, his, Hosea's wife's adultery. And then the last chapters, 4 through 14, represent the adultery of the nation. So you can work the outline like this. Split it into the first three chapters, Hosea's relationship with an adulterous wife. And the last chapters, 4 through 14, is God's relationship with an adulterous people, adulterous Israel. So they, they, he kind of uses one to compare to the other. And, uh, and you'll see more about that as we get into it. So let's take the first one. Hosea's relationship with an adulterous wife. Throughout Scripture, God uses the picture of marriage to talk about his relationship with his people. I mean, you can see that all through Scripture. Isaiah 62.5 says this, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's a marriage picture. And, 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 and it lo- in this day and time when marriages fail quickly and there's lots of divorce and everything, it loses its, its oomph a little bit. Because used to, you could talk about marriage as something that never ended. It was a commitment that you couldn't shake. It was a till death do you part commitment. And we don't see as much of that anymore. But this is the commitment that God is talking about to have with his people. And so consequently, this is the commitment that is demonstrated through Hosea. Uh, God uses adultery as an example or as an illustration of a people that turn away from him. So the marriage example is what goes all the way through Hosea. The example of a commitment to a bride, a uh, husband to his bride, and adultery is used when that bride decides to turn and go somewhere else. First part of the book is kind of physical. Second half of the book is spiritual. Now, it's really easy to read the book of Hosea and, and read this relationship and kind of be removed from it, kind of be sterile from it, just read it kind of factually. And if you've been through the book of Hosea and, you have, and you're familiar with it, you, I mean, you get that. We read, we know what's happening. But sometimes we're too familiar with something and we need to get woke back up to something. So I want to use this to get you in the mindset of what Hosea is all about. Watch this video.
can you feel that? This is what the book of Hosea is all about. I love that video. That's one video out of a six-part video series done by Irving Bible Church. And uh, that's just the first one. You can find them online if you go to YouTube and type in the Hosea Love Story and maybe Irving Bible Church. You'll find these videos, and there's six of them. They're all really short, three minutes, five minutes apiece, something like that. But it goes through the whole story of Hosea. In, in kind of a modern-day context. I showed that to you because I could talk to you about an adulterous woman. I could talk to you about an adulterous people, about betrayal, and it would just kind of go in your ear and out the other. It'd be all very logical. But when you see this, you feel it. And this is what Hosea is all about. Look at chapter 1. Start in verse 1 and 2. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bere, In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. These were the kings of Judah at the time. And in the days of Jeroboam, this would have been Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. Now listen to verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom. By forsaking the Lord. Okay. That's the first word Hosea gets from God. I mean, that's a way to start your prophetic ministry, isn't it? It's the very first word he gets from him. Here's what I want you to do. How do you feel when you read this? What does it make you think about? Or how does it make you react? Hmm? Makes you wonder what's going on. Why would God ask something like this? And if you just read Scripture just like it's the newspaper, and you just read through something like that, and you just keep going, and it doesn't stir you to ask questions or say why or get involved in the story, then you're going through Scripture too fast and you're not thinking enough about it. If you'd have been Hosea, what would you have been thinking and feeling if God said that? Probably the same thing. Yes. What have I done to deserve this? Yeah, are you punishing me? Those are great questions. Don't skim through Hosea and, and not think about what this must have felt like for him and what this must have been like for them. What do you think the people around him thought? You know, it's not just what he has to do, but he's got to carry a certain stigma now. You know, his friends and family were saying, you're going to do what? Really? That can't be right. That's bad pizza talking. That's not God. I mean, can you imagine what they thought of him when he did this? You know, and other prophets were called to act out some prophecies. Remember Jeremiah Isaiah, some of them were all called to act out some prophecies. Hosea was called to live out a prophecy. And remember, we said he did this for 34 years. He lived this out for 34 years, which is a huge thing. Uh, Now, let's talk about verse 2 for a little bit. There's two ways of looking at verse 2. There's no way to know for sure which is right. 
But there's just two ways to look at verse 2. When God tells Hosea to marry a wife of whoredom. Well, the first way is that to say that Gomer, which is really, can I just say that's a bad name for a wife? You know, Gomer. What's your wife's name? Gomer, you know, that kind of thing. But one way of looking at it is that Gomer was a faithful wife when they first got married. But God knew that she would become unfaithful. It's one way of looking at it. Second way of looking at it was, was God told him to marry an unfaithful wife from the start? You know, a prostitute from the start, if you will. It doesn't make any difference how you look at it. Both ways are a tough road to hoe. But just their hard calling. And uh, it doesn't change anything. Whichever way you lean to, this is just unimaginable. But this is exactly what God needs to do to show the depth of Israel's sin and the depth of his love for them. So Hosea obeys God. He marries Gomer. They have a son. Look at verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said, call his name Jezreel. The, word, the name Jezreel means to scatter. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So, not only does Hosea marry this unfaithful wife, but the first child he has, he has to name it to scatter. Some say that Jezreel means to war. So, it's already off to a bad start, right? Okay, and then there are two more children. Now, Jezreel, in, in case you, you don't remember the history, Jehu was an Israelite general who had a coup, seized power from the king, and, uh, from jo and the king Joram and the king of Israel, and then he killed king Joram in the valley of Jezreel. So he, he basically overthrew the king, and it was bloody coup. And so God says, you know what? It's time to pay for that thing right there. So first child is named Jezreel. Look at verse 6 through 9. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy. For I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God. It's talking about northern kingdom and southern kingdom. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, which again is a terrible name for a child, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. So, three children, scattered or war, no mercy, and you're not my people. God's trying to make a point. He's trying to make a strong point with this one. Uh, but as he usually does, he always holds out hope. Always holds out hope. Look at verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the seas and shall not be, that shall not be measured or numbered. And in the place where I said to them, you are not my people... It shall be said to them, children of the living God. 
And the children of Judah and the children of Israel, the two different kingdoms, shall be gathered together. And they shall appoint themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. God's saying, despite all of this, I'm still going to put things together. Despite how bad it looks, despite how bad it sounds, despite the consequences of your sin, I am still going to put things together. That has been the message through every prophet we've studied so far. I want to get your attention. I want you to turn. You're not going to turn. Consequences are going to be bad, but I'm going to bring you back. That is the message there. And uh, by the time you get to chapter 2, there's this long, and we're not even going to go into it for the sake of time because I really want to complete this book tonight if we can. Uh, You get to chapter 2, there's this poetic description of an unfaithful wife to a faithful husband and how that applies to God and his people. It's a very interesting, it's a very interesting passage to read. Verse 5, well, verse 2 says, plead with your mother and goes on to say that she put away her whoring from her face. Verse 5, their mother has played the whore. Mother said, I will go after my lovers. And you could just read this poetic story that God is setting up to say, that's exactly what's going on here. That's what's going on between me and my own people. And then he says, I will uncover her lewdness in verse 10. I will put an end to her mirth. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees. In other words, there's consequences to her actions. And I will not withhold those consequences if she doesn't turn. All right, so, and then you get to verse 14. And again, when you read these things, it sounds like God's a little schizophrenic, you know. I'm going to punish you for this, and then, no, I'm going to bring you back and make things better. And so he kind of does one of those numbers in verse 14 of chapter 2. I love this passage. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Speaking of what he's going to do for his wayward people, his adulterous people. Verse 15, and there I will give her vineyards, give her her vineyards. And listen to this phrase. I will make the valley of Achor, the word Achor means trouble. I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. So God says, I'm calling you back. You won't listen. That's going to create lots and lots of trouble for you. But I will eventually turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope. And you will hear this in almost every prophecy that we study. So it's a a great time. But by the time you get to chapter 3, Hosea's wife has left. Chapter 3, we get back to Hosea again. You're introduced in chapter 1. You have this nice poetic thing about God and his people in chapter 2. Now chapter 3, you're back to Hosea and Gomer again. And, and by the time you get to chapter 3, she's left. She's left him. She's hit the road. And things have gone so bad for her, she's on the auction block, being sold as a slave. So listen to chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord, here's the key, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethich of barley. This is not a very high price for a person, for a slave. In that day, it was a pretty low price. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. 
You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Okay, so what's God trying to say? What do you think is going through Hosea's mind when God tells him to go buy her back? Yeah, exactly. Are you crazy? I mean, look what she's already done. And she's not repentant. And you want me to do this? I have no guarantee that she's not going to do this again. And not only do you want me to take her back, you want me to plunk down my hard-earned cash for her too? This is easier to read when you don't have to think about what it would have felt like. Again, think what his friends thought. You are crazy. If you're going to do this, you are crazy. This is the dilemma that Hosea was in. This is the dilemma that God was in. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Go down to verse 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar or without ephod or household gods. Afterward... The children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So the first three chapters are about Hosea and this adulterous wife and and how he puts himself out for her despite the fact that she continues to be unfaithful. And when she gives him the ultimate betrayal and completely turns away from him and chases after people who eventually just put her up on the auction block and sell her, he still goes after her. This is the picture of what God does for us. Not just Israel. The rest of the book is about how this applies to God's relationship with Israel. But this is also a picture of how God responds to us. Every one of us are a gomer. We, we, every one of us are the adulterous wife, if you will. No matter how good we think we are, we still turn. We still ignore. We still find more pleasure in other things than we do in him. We still want other things or other people more than we want him. This is who we are. We don't like to think of it, but this is who we are. I'd like to think I was the the Hosea in the story, but really not. We're all the Gomer in the story. And uh, so the rest of the book shifts over to God's relationship with the adulterous Israel, the adulterous nation. Now, chapters 4 and 5 give an account of Israel's sin and the consequences. And and if you skim through chapter 4, it's almost like there's a checklist of their sin, of Israel's sin. Uh, Verse 1, There's no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God. Verse 2, swearing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, bloodshed. Verse 4, you find out the priests are involved in this kind of stuff. Verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. It's not just that they don't know God. They've rejected knowing God. You know, it's not ignorance. It's rebellion. Verse 12, my people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staffs give oracles. That's a joke. They have left their God to play the whore. 
Verse 13, to play the whore. Verse 14, adultery. Verse 16, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols. This is a list of their sin through chapter 4 and chapter 5. And then chapter 6, God does what he always does. It looks like he's going to bring the hammer down on them, and then he calls them to repentance. Let me give you another chance. If you'll just turn, if you'll just listen, if you'll just turn. So look at verse, uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. How many of you like that verse? Listen to it again. He's torn us that he might heal us. He's struck us down that he might bind us up. I'm not sure I like those verses. Why would a God that's supposed to be a loving God and care so much for us, he keeps telling us again and again, repent, turn, turn, turn. Why would he strike us down just so he could build us back up? Doesn't that sound a little cruel? Yeah, but isn't there other ways to make us stronger than dismantle us? Yeah, but I'm trying to figure out, I mean, we can read this about Israel and go, yeah, you betcha, that's what he does. Read it about you. You know? How many of you would tell your children, I'm going to destroy you so I can build you up better? Right? We would never say that, but we do do that, right? If you've ever administered discipline to your children in the form of corporal punishment or some other punishment, you have tried to tear them down a little bit so you can bring them back up. That's what parents do. That's what loving people do. Now, you don't do that just for the fun of it. I mean, you don't just like walk in the living room one day and they're not doing anything and you just say, hey, you know what? You got it coming to you. And it's always in response to something they've done and they've not listened or, or not paid attention. And so sometimes you say, well, this is the only thing that's going to get their attention. This is what a loving parent does. This is what a loving God does. I'm telling you to turn. If you'll just turn by the sound of my voice, that will be great. But if you're not going to do that, I'm going to have to do something else to get your attention so that I can turn you. Absolutely. And God disciplines us when we don't do right. But think of it this way. I can then, based upon this premise, I can control my punishment. All I have to do is listen and obey quicker. Right? If I don't like the tough stuff that's coming, I need to listen and obey quicker. Because if I don't, then he's going to have to up the ante to get my attention. And if I don't, then he's going to up the ante again, not to punish me, but to get my attention and get me to turn. So the quicker I turn, the easier the lesson is. We can tell our children that, but it's hard to tell us that. You know? Why did this happen to me? Well, because you did this, this, and this. Well, it wasn't my fault. Yeah, it was your fault. And, well, I don't care. So it's going to get worse. This is who we are. And, And so God says this. Come and return to the Lord. He's torn us down so he may heal us. He struck us down that he may bind us up. Verse 3, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. 
That's a really important verse. Let us know and let us press on to know the Lord. And the word know is not just this thing up here, just know about. I know about a lot of things and a lot of people. I knew about my wife before I married her. But I didn't know her. Until I committed to her and walked with her and went through stuff with her and had this experience with her. This is what it's talking about when it says, let us press on to know the Lord. Not just know about him. Experience him, walk with him, trust him, be a part of him. This is what this is talking about. And then he goes down in verse 6. Listen to what he says in verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What do you think he's saying? He doesn't want us to give him things. He wants us to give him us. Yes. Yes. He's much more in, concerned about his relationship with us than the stuff we do for him. Because to be honest with you, he doesn't need anything. Yes. From the Garden of Eden, the punishment or the, the consequences of sin was something had to die to try to cover that sin. From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, an animal dies so that God can cover their nakedness, their shame, their sin. And, but it's not a sufficient covering, so it has to be done over and over and over again. So it reminds us that sin is costly, that sin is life-threatening, that sin is going to cost somebody something. And that for us to be, for us to not suffer the consequences of our sins, something else or somebody else has to. And that's why Jesus is called the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in Hebrews it says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. It's, it's, it's one way that God says, you have no idea how destructive your sin is. And I'd rather not you have to pay that destruction, but somebody has to, something has to. And so they had got it in their head because they'd done this for so many years that it was all about the ritual. Hey, I was here on Sunday morning. Hey, I dropped some money in the offering plate. Hey, I read my Sunday school lesson. Those are, can be routine especially if you're not listening to, knowing, obeying, following God. That's what's more important. Your children can come and say, look what I made for you. But if they do that right on the heels of saying, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do what I want to do, does what they've done for you really matter? It doesn't. Dad, I love you so much, I bought you this because I know this is your favorite. Oh, by the way, I wrecked your car. You know? You know, I love you so much, I got this for you, but I'm not going to obey anything you tell me. Well, which is more important to me, what you got for me or you obeying what I tell you? And this is why he says, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. If you look in 1 Samuel 15, it says, to obey 
is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Yeah. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Does it mean sacrifice is wrong? Absolutely not. But it means if you're trying to replace that with knowing, obeying, following, listening to God, it, it's no replacement. It's sacrifice is not the replacement for that. Sacrifice is the thing that flows out of that relationship. It doesn't replace a relationship. I can tell you how many couples come into my office and, oh, yeah, they're paying the bills and they're putting gas in the car and they're feeding the children and, and, and they're doing all the right things, but they have no relationship. And doing all the right things don't hold the relationship together. You have to have the relationship first. And, and this is what God's talking about. So he's calling them back to this. Again, he's, why does he keep doing this? Why does he keep calling them back? Because they keep turning away. But the problem is not his relationship with us. The problem is our relationship with him. Go back to the video you watched. When, when the guy walks in on his adulterous wife, did you feel it? What did you feel? Hurt. Anguish. Heartbreak. This is what God feels. This is why he puts this in the context of Hosea and Gomer. Because this is not a God that just says, I told you to do something, you're not doing it, and I'm the boss, so you're going to pay for that. This is not this God. This is a God that says, from the Garden of Eden, I have gone out of my way to woo you and to capture you and to bring you. I pulled you out of Egypt. I fed you. I have clothed you. And you'll see this here in the book in just a minute. And you're betraying me for pieces of wood. And, and a few coins of change. Yes? When we leave God, God doesn't leave us. We leave God. God doesn't leave us. Now, the question is, why doesn't he? Because it makes perfect sense if he would. But he doesn't. Right. And, and so, Hosea is a picture of God's relentless love, even when we're not paying attention to it or, or listening to it. Uh, it's an incredible, incredible picture. I don't, I mean, I would have hated to have been Hosea to go through that, but I don't know that you can get a better picture of the relationship to God, of God to his people. And, and not just the children of Israel, to us. To us. So, you get to chapter 7, he continues to recount their sin in chapter 7, so he recounts their sin in 6, then he calls them back, and then he recounts their sin again. He keeps going back and forth because they're not turning. They're not listening. They're not paying attention. 
So he says, here's what's coming down the pike, but if you will just turn, here's what's coming down the pike, because you're not turning. Uh, when you get to chapter 11, and uh, there, there's, some, there's some great passages that we're skipping over, and I know it. One, one great passage is chapter 8, verse 7. Some of you will recognize this from a movie. For they sow the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. Remember the movie that that was used in? That's too bad because I don't either. No, it's <laughs> I really don't. I, I remember the movie, but I believe it was the movie about Clarence Darrell and the, uh, to, inherit the wind. to Inherit the Wind. It was a movie about the, uh, the evolution trials, right? Yeah. Yes. Say it again. Scopes Monkey Trials, exactly, thank you. That's where you see this verse used. It's a really good old movie. Uh, should go back and, and watch that. But, but when you get to chapter 11, listen to the heart of God. Listen to the heart of God in chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now that verse is used to refer to Jesus when he was a child and Herod had died, and Mary and Joseph come back from Egypt. That verse is used to apply to him. But here it's the heart of God. The more they, they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. And yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms. But they didn't know that it was I that led them, that healed them. Verse 4, I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down. God saying, I actually bent down and fed them. Hear his heart. Now, you understand this, but if you've ever had a prodigal, you really understand this. You really understand this. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they've refused to return to me. Then, so he's, he's talking about how the sword will, will ravage them and rage against their cities. But go to verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Edmah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not Again, destroy Ephraim, for I am God, I am not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. God's saying, I can't do this. Now, it doesn't mean he's not going to let them suffer the consequences of their rebellion. What it means is he's not going to let it be fatal forever. I can't do this. Now, again, if you just read this as it applies to Israel, you really miss it. Because this is what you and I should be grateful, infinitely grateful for. Because he does the same thing with us. This is a passage about his grace and his mercy and his relentless love that applies to us. And then finally, I know we're skimming this a lot, but, but some of this is pretty repetitive. 
But when you get to the last chapter, go to chapter 14. Finally, Hosea ends the book with this final appeal to God's people. Listen to it. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls and vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more our God to the works of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. And then he goes on to say, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. So this is God's final appeal. Now listen to the last verse. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But the transgressors stumble in them. That is a powerful way to end a book. The ways of the Lord don't change. They're the same for the righteous and for the transgressors. The thing that changes is the outcome, because the righteous walk in his ways, and they do just that. They walk. But the transgressors stumble. God doesn't change. His ways don't change. It's up to us to decide whether we're going to walk in them or stumble in them. So God takes this adulterous woman in Hosea's life and says, this is just like my children. If you can picture what it would feel like to marry someone who's not going to be faithful to you and constantly turn from you and not be that repentant about it and you can never be assured that they're going to be completely committed to you. If you can understand what that feels like, how much that hurts and the heartbreak, and then you can understand how I feel about my people, how I feel about you. And you can also understand how easily it is for you and for me to play the harlot in all kinds of things. It's way easy. This is the God that gives us life and breath, and sometimes we're just too busy for him. I mean, this is the God that saves us from our sin, but sometimes we have other things to do. Doesn't that sound like the same thing? We just don't look at it that way. All right, so let me give you some takeaways. Some takeaways. Here's the first one, and there's lots of them, and, and I will guarantee you we've skimmed over some of this book, uh, but it'll be 2027 before we get done if I don't do some of that, so takeaways. When we sin, it is a personal betrayal towards God and a personal affront to Him. We Forget that so much that it's not just a mistake or an indiscretion. It's a personal affront to the Creator. It's personal. The woman on the video, if she went to her husband and said, you know what, I just made a mistake. Is, is he going to feel good about it? Is he not going to take it personal? 
No, betrayal was very personal for him. And every time you and I sin, it is personal towards God. And, and, and we need to come back to that mindset. Sin has become too easy for us, too light for us. And we have to come back to that. Okay? Takeaway number two. No matter how much he reaches out to us, God cannot force us to love him. Because if he did, it wouldn't be love. But neither can our sin force him to stop reaching out to us. Let that one sink in for just a little bit. No matter how much he reaches out, he can't force us to love him. And no matter how much we sin, we can't force him to stop reaching out to us. I mean, that's why he keeps saying, this is what's going to happen. The Assyrians are going to take you off. It's going to be bad. Listen. But I know you're not going to listen, and I know that you're going to keep rebelling, and I know the Assyrians are going to take you off, and so it's going to happen. But I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to keep reaching out. I don't quit. I don't quit. Another takeaway. God will allow us to experience the consequences of our rebellion. He just will. But when he does, his desire is to turn our valley of trouble into a door of hope. When he allows us to experience the consequences of our sin, it's not to destroy us, it's to recapture us and regain us and rebuild us. When we suffer the consequences of our sin, it is our discipline, not our punishment. Discipline is for the purpose of building somebody up, correcting them, making them better. Punishment is something different. So he will allow us to suffer the consequences of our sin if we refuse to turn from that sin. But when he does, his ulterior motive is still to bring us back, build us up, bring us close. Why is God punishing me? Well, first of all, you did this to yourself. And second of all, he's trying to get your attention to bring you back. He's not trying to throw you away. It's really hard to, to get a handle on that when you're in the midst of it, but... Another takeaway. Personal and intimate knowledge of God is the fixed point on which we build everything else in our life. You have to start there because everything else is on shaky ground if you don't start there. This personal, intimate relationship with God is how you build everything else. When my wife and I got married, we got married on a Saturday afternoon and by Sunday evening, we were in Oklahoma ready to start new jobs. Everything we owned was in the back of a little Nissan pickup truck. Most of it was bedding, which is kind of ironic because we didn't even own a bed. Uh, we had no furniture. Well, I had a stand to put my stereo on. That's it. I mean, we ate on the floor. We slept on the floor. The first thing we ever bought was a vacuum cleaner because if you eat on the floor long enough, it just gets nasty. And... Uh, <laughs> That's all we had. But our relationship started with the two of us being close and being intimate, just the two of us, and then everything built on that. And this is what God wants from us. Not figure out my will, not make sure you do that. Just know me. 
intimately and closely. And everything else will happen from that. You can see this in the references I've gave you. Let me give you one more takeaway. We will either walk in the ways of the Lord or we will stumble in them. But they won't go away. Choice is ours. Either walk in them or you stumble in them. And we can't modify them, shake them, change them, make them work for us, play fast and loose with them. They just are what they are. If you decide to walk off the top of the building, you will probably suffer the effects of gravity because gravity doesn't change. And God's Word doesn't either. All right, I know we rushed through this book a little bit. Tell me what your takeaways are from the book of Hosea. We did that good a job this evening. Yes! A book as rich as Hosea, you've got something there. What are you taking away? Yes, we can leave him and probably will at times, but he never will leave us. Now, that doesn't mean that he's just going to pat us on the head and never let us suffer the consequences of our sin. But even when we suffer the consequences, we don't, he doesn't leave us. Absolutely. Hmm? Yeah, sometimes we can change the hurt. Now, Hosea... Absolutely. If you read Hosea and never really feel the depth of the betrayal and the hurt that he had to felt, you don't get the book of Hosea. You're reading Hosea like some kind of report or something, but you don't get Hosea if you don't feel how drastic that must have felt for him and how the betrayal must have hurt time and time and time again. Right, right. But, but, but the thing of it is, is sometimes God doesn't tell us to get away from the hurt. He tells us to walk through it and walk in it. That's what he called Hosea to do. And, and so, at the bedrock of Hosea is this deep sense of, of giving yourself completely to someone. Completely. And having that person betray you time and time and time again. And yet you still having a heart that you want to win that people, person back. This is the heart of Hosea and Gomer. This is the heart of God and his people. This is the heart of God and us. And this is what you have to get out of Hosea. Because otherwise you will never understand the love of God. If you don't understand this relentless love that God used Hosea to show that just keeps coming and coming after betrayal, after betrayal, after betrayal. You'll never understand the relentless love of God. That's what this book is all about. All right, we're a minute over. Time to pray. Let's go. Father, I'm grateful for this time. I'm grateful for these people. I am grateful, Father, for everything you've done. Father, I believe that the message in Hosea is so much deeper than we can plumb. I believe we just, in Hosea, we just need to sit 
with how it must have felt for Hosea and, and, and how destructive Gomer must have been and how relentless that love, how, how crazy that love must have seemed for Hosea to keep pursuing Gomer. And how crazy it is after we've hurt you to the depths of your heart with betrayal after betrayal, how crazy it seems that you continue to pursue us. That you send your son to the cross knowing that there are going to be lots of people, more than not, reject him and betray him and not care anything about him. And you still sent him and he still went. This is what we need to sit with, Father. And I pray you will not let us get away from this the rest of the week, but it will just brew in our hearts and minds until we really get it. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.